Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you now, Team Buck. Welcome to the Freedom Hunt. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. It would be great to hear from you. Do give me a call if you like. Uh, I have a lot to get to today, including the uh, Soviet-style rewriting of history by some former Obama uh, toadies, and uh, we'll get to that. On the, on the issue of the Syrian civil war and the genocide there, um, that will be coming up later on in the show. Also, uh, revisiting the issue of gender differences in the workplace and gender choice in the workplace and how all that stuff actually gets... Uh, how all that stuff actually gets sorted out via science. And uh, I'll have some updates for you on Hurricane Irma, which is barreling towards Florida right now. uh, And in fact, is currently believed to be the most powerful hurricane since they started measuring hurricanes. It's absolutely terrifying. Uh, but first, some some political news from the day here. Uh, you have Trump tweeting out yesterday uh, that Congress now has. So yesterday they, they rescind DACA. And they're going to phase it out over six months. Deferred action for childhood arrivals. This was an utterly lawless decision by the Obama administration, by President Obama himself. There was a swindle. It's important that we remember the history here. There was a ruse. It was a trick to get the gang of eight to come together and create some comprehensive immigration reform bill. I remember I covered this very closely at the time. And the more we all looked at the bill, the more it became quite clear that the only certainty is amnesty. Everything else is subject to phase-in or phase-out, budgetary constraints, comes down the line if they don't decide to bail on I mean, it is absolutely, positively the case that the only guarantee you would have if you had gotten that comprehensive immigration reform bill passed is that a lot of people who broke the law to come to this country and stayed in this country, and in many cases continued to break the law to... Um, continue to break the law would be rewarded for it. And everyone who has been standing in line, who's been trying to go through the legal immigration process, which can take years and thousands of dollars and countless hours to go through, they're chumps, right? Because they, they did it the right way, but if you do it the wrong way, you get to skip all that. In fact, if you are DACA-approved, you can apply for the earned income tax credit and get a check back from the Treasury for being in the country illegally. 
Democrats not only want to, through DACA, give driver's licenses, work permits, Obamacare, subsidized health care. They don't just want to give all of that to people who break the law and come into the country illegally. They would also be quite happy to have the taxpayer directly pay them, reimburse them, if you will, for the anxiety of breaking the law in this country and having to worry that the law might, in fact, be enforced. And so yesterday we have the DACA is rescinded and every day, oh, my gosh, it's so terrible. And what is going to happen? There's going to be all these deportations. I don't think there are going to be deportations of those covered under DACA in any significant numbers whatsoever. So that's my prediction right now, because there are a lot of other people that would be much further uh, up on the priority list. One would assume that someone who is covered under DACA, uh, assuming that this is has been implemented properly, that they're law-abiding, that they aren't an individual with a criminal record. And there are others out there, many illegal immigrants. I mean, our data on illegal immigrants in general is so uh, poor. It's of such a poor quality that you have to assume that the federal government doesn't really want to know. It would rather not know what the status of illegal immigrants in this country uh, what their status is with regard to their percentage of crimes and what the the state prison population, how many illegals are in, are in state prison. They just don't want to know these things. They'd rather not know. And we have the endless repetition of these slogans. Illegals do the jobs Americans won't do. We're a nation of immigrants. We're illegals commit crimes or sorry, uh, immigrants commit crime at a lower rate than native born. Isn't it interesting that you can promote the group, as in the aggregate of immigrants, as better than Americans, if you're an American and people applaud you. But if you have any questions at all about illegal immigrants coming into the country and how much they contribute or whether they should be contributing at all because maybe they shouldn't be here because it's a violation of law, you're a bigot. You're a racist. You're a bad person. That seems to be quite a double standard to me. I'm not really sure how anyone can stomach that and yet here we are that's the common that's the commonplace wisdom if you wanted to be a cool person yesterday if you wanted to be virtue signaling you're just oh the dreamers i just they're they're just dreaming and they're just trying to dream more and whatever happened to rule of law whatever happened to the constitution separation of powers why is it that in our culture right now it's quaint to even talk about those things. There's there's no two ways about this. President Obama gave what is effectively an illegal order to the federal government. And the federal government went ahead with it. That's disconcerting in and of itself. But that now we have so many people in the media and across the country who are willing to set aside the rule of law, that words on the page that the statutes, the sentences that comprise them, that that all has meaning and has merit. To set that aside because people like something, because it makes them feel good to like it, which is a vast majority of the support you see for DACA, for dreamers. That's why they're called dreamers. Just using that term is, in fact, already conceding a lot in the discussion, isn't it? Just like they don't want us to say illegal 
illegal aliens. In fact, you've got now journalists that'll say that this is offensive. To say nothing of his use of the word illegal aliens, which is offensive to a lot of people and not correct. But, Michael, the fact is, I don't know what he's talking about. Why do people, why does Andrea Mitchell get paid to go on TV and, and weigh in with her opinion on anything? She knows nothing. I just, I don't come on air to be mean about other people, and I try to let people do their thing, and I know there's a lot of disagreement out there. But time and again, this person just is a, is a parade of ignorance. And I'm sure he's paid you know, millions of dollars to go on TV and say things like, that's that's incorrect or not correct to say legal alien. Well, under U.S. federal law, it is in fact correct. Where are the Republicans who are making the case about this on the other side, I should note? Where are the Republicans who are saying that illegal aliens cost the country billions upon billions of dollars in services, in incarceration, in any number of things? Where are the Republicans who say, why is it that Democrats will only talk about this one subset of the overall illegal immigrant population and you can't actually force a Democrat in high office right now to tell you who shouldn't be allowed to stay in the country. They won't, they won't tell you that they'll exclude anybody. In fact, the whole game now is just to convince as many people as possible that the Republicans and all of their considerations about immigration and rule of law, that that's, it's just a cover for racism. It's all about racism which is a really destructive narrative. And at a time when the, when the country is already ripped in two ideologically, and those divisions are being exacerbated intentionally by a media that acts like there's a rising tide of white nationalists that are not just a prominent voice in the Republican Party, but are in fact running the Republican Party. That punching people for what they say is in a country that really separates itself from the rest of the world more than anything else by its freedom of speech. It's one of the, if you're looking for something that's truly unique about America, it's the way we approach speech, which is the first freedom. I know a lot of you would say you need, you know, you need the second amendment to defend the first fair point, but you need the first amendment to have any actual usage of any other freedoms. In Europe, you you don't have you can't just get away with saying things that you like. Oh no, you, you you'll get in trouble for saying the wrong things about history. You can get in trouble for saying nasty things about different groups. In fact, I think there was a story this week about a guy who advocated killing ISIS in the UK. Like we should go out and kill ISIS, and he's in trouble and under investigation. I think he was in Scotland, University of Edinburgh, uh, and. I wonder, isn't it the official policy of the UK and the United States and our allies to kill as many ISIS fighters as we possibly can? I mean, we're we're actively engaged in that, right? But free speech doesn't really exist in the same way in Europe that it exists here in America. But here we are with free speech under assault and a media that won't even defend it. An ACLU, which for all of its underhanded and shady inclinations politically in the past at least was something of a free speech absolutist outfit tried to be and now they're like yeah you know we should we should take this 
intersectional, meaning every identity group, identity politics is the defining characteristics, a uh, d- characteristic of daily American life. That's how we should define ourselves. And that's how we should define free speech. So victim groups get to decide what other people who are in the oppress oppressor groups can say. And this is happening right now. This is a a not just a revolution within the culture that's been going on for quite some time, but as I have been telling you, it is a war on the culture itself. It is intended to rip it all down. Whatever happened to all the outrage about the monuments? Oh, that that just served its purpose for a little while, and now the outrage is about DACA. It's a better story of the Trump administration. From the media's perspective, it's a better story of the Trump administration's racism. It's a more effective means of telling the tale, which is what most journalists right now in this country, based on their reporting and the way they approach this, and specifically the words they use, like Andrea Mitchell and others, many others. And she's just the first one that we, you know, we had a sound clip of her, so I played her today. But they really do believe that the constitutional act of the president yesterday, or rather the restoration of constitutional respect that President Trump engaged in, although imperfectly yesterday. I'll get into that in a moment. I have a I have a bone to pick with this administration. That that's not motivated by respect for law, that it has nothing to do with law. And in fact, the law doesn't really matter here anymore because it's just about racism. It's just about racism. If you if you would have watched MSNBC last night, you would see they're open about it. The Trump administration and the Republican Party and all of the men and women across the country who support an immigration, uh, immigration enforcement, immigration enforcement of our laws. They're just racists pretending to care about rule of law. They're just racists pretending to care about sovereignty and the integrity of the relationship between citizen and state here. That's. That's all secondary. That's irrelevant, really. They think it's just about racism. Because this is an effective, it's a, a lazy approach for the Democrats. Because this is, it's so easy. They can call everything racist. Oh, this is racist. That is racist. But I wonder when we can also hold the Republicans accountable for failing to have a counter-narrative in place here. I can't exactly explain to you either what the, what the president himself is. Thinking on this, he tweeted out that Congress now has six months to legalize DACA, something the Obama administration was unable to do. If they can't, I will revisit this issue. And then Trump today uh, said that he had no second thoughts about this. No second thoughts. No second thoughts about this. And then he also said that this was the right move and that it'll get us to a long-term solution. Well, I have a great heart for the folks we're talking about, a great love for them. And people think in terms of children, but they're really young adults. Uh, I have a love for these people, and hopefully now Congress will be able to help them and do it properly. And I can tell you, in speaking to members of Congress, they want to be able to do something and do it right. And really, we have no choice. We have to be able to do something. And I think it's going to work out very well. And long term, it's going to be the right solution. So he's right in rescinding DACA because President Obama was wrong to do that. 
But now it sounds like President Trump wants there to be a congressional amnesty for the recipients of DACA or some official codified extension of what has been deferred action for illegals in the country via the Congress. Just amnesty. And what, you can call it whatever you want, but now he's not saying that. But I want to know what I'm missing here. I want to know how the president who beat his Republican contenders largely for the presidency, he beat them because of the issue of immigration, because of his strong stand, because of his anti-establishment stand on immigration. And now I'm like, well, who's pushing for legalization for DACA? Is it Paul Ryan within the Republican ranks or is it Donald Trump? I don't have an answer, but I'm worried. Hurricane Irma has already devastated some smaller islands in the Caribbean. It's a Category 5, the highest possible on the hurricane scale. It has winds of 185 miles per hour. It is one of the most powerful storms ever recorded in the Atlantic. And it is expected to make landfall in Florida sometime this weekend. We've got Tim calling in from Florida. He's former Coast Guard, and he says he's evacuating right now. Tim, what can you tell me? Buck, what's up, man? First, a long-time listener, first-time caller, man. Thank you very much. Shield time, my friend. I appreciate it. Tell me what's going on down there. Yeah, so I'm actually calling from a hotel room in Florence, South Carolina, alongside my six-month-old Great Dane. I evacuated this morning about 4 a.m. And my wife is currently, uh, she's in the Coast Guard. She's a lieutenant in the Coast Guard, and she's actually in Fort Lauderdale right now. And what what can the, the the storm is supposed to hit? What Friday or Saturday? I mean, what are the preparations yeah. that that are being made by by the Coast Guard? And what what can you tell us about what's going on? Yeah, I think uh, so. I think they're looking at Saturday night into Sunday um, for the brunt of it. And I know from a Coast Guard perspective, you know the the, the main role of the Coast Guard right now is is kind of positioning assets in key locations where they're out of out of the storm, out of the harm's way. But, but so they're, they're able to kind of regroup as soon as it passes and affect rescue. So right now the Coast Guard's moving pieces all over kind of the state of Florida, around the Caribbean, kind of without giving away any OPSEC. But Coast Guard cutters are being positioned in certain spots out of harm's way so they can recollect back in, in South Florida once it, once it passes. Have you been through a hurricane before in Florida, Tim? Uh, not well. We were here for Matthew last year. We kind of we kind of got lucky on that one. But I was actually the uh, commanding officer of the search and rescue unit up on Fire Island when Sandy hit. Oh wow! Yeah, I went through that one, and that, we rode that one out at the Coast Guard station. And you know that was a that was a major event. You had a culmination of a bunch of storms that hit with really high tides, but nothing. I don't think nothing like this is going to be. Yeah, this is this is looking cataclysmic on the on the radar screens that I'm looking at right now. Uh, but Tim, thank you for your service. Keep yourself and your family safe. All right, appreciate you calling yeah, in. Man. Yeah, man, Don't keep worry. your keep your head down when this thing's hitting hitting hard. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. For the next few months, eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. Let's be clear, this is not amnesty. This is not immunity. This is not a path to citizenship. It's not a permanent fix. This is a temporary stopgap measure 
that lets us focus our resources while giving a degree of relief and hope to talented, driven, patriotic young people. Temporary, President Obama said. That was back in 2012. Uh, Pretty sure it's 2017, though. Five years ago, we were told it was a temporary uh, stopgap measure. Five years ago. He, He was doing this in anticipation of congressional action. Now here we are, five years later, and this program is extended and extended, and more and more people are covered under it. And, and once again, we run into this, you know, we're told not to, you know, don't judge illegal immigrants by the acts of a few, when, when Trump talks about crime and illegal immigrant statistics. But the, so the press will say that, and, and I agree, you know, every individual, no matter what, Immigration status or what background they're for. Every individual is an individual. You judge people as people. But you'll notice that they'll then immediately turn around with the, oh, but, you know, they work harder than normal Americans. And and they're like the best and the brightest and we need them for our economy and they're amazing. I mean, I'm sure some of them are. But do we have to pretend that all of the 800,000 covered under DACA are incredible? Do we really have to just do that? Because I, what is that based on? This is about the policy and the constitutionality of the issue. It's not about whether there are some nice people that are covered in DACA. I'm sure there are some, there are lots of phenomenal people covered in DACA. I'm also sure there are some pretty terrible ones. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, there are some pretty amazing people out there who, you know, get caught up in not paying their taxes. And some of them go to prison. They're really nice people. They'd be pleasant for you to talk to. And they've done something that we should all understand Affects you and me, not at all. Affects the government, not at all. But if everybody does it, then there's a problem. You make policy for the group, for the aggregate. You treat people as individuals. It's an important maxim to keep in mind going forward. But President Obama said it was temporary. And he wasn't supposed to do that he wasn't really able to do this in the first place it was just stealing you know this is the whole pun on the phone i've got a pun on the phone uh this is stealing the uh, congressional right to create legislation and that there wasn't more of an outcry at the time from the media should tell you two things one oh my gosh they love obama and two media is so in favor of illegal immigration amnesty for legal immigration that they just can't help themselves they can't help themselves and this is relatively recent as i've said to you the new york times editorial board not an editorial columnist but the whole editorial board as recently as the early 2000s was writing about how illegal immigration puts pressure on the wages of workers who are at the lower end of the wage scale and specifically and disproportionately african-americans in this country suffer because of illegal immigration. Their wages are depressed because of illegal immigration. And the completely rational comparison of what do I get for doing jobs that I am ready for versus what would I just get from the state and not working becomes enticing in a way that it shouldn't be because of the wage, the the, uh, depressing of wages that occurs here. But yesterday, everyone acted like something something terrible has happened. No one's even been deported yet. And 
the president is saying, you know, I'm not sure who's celebrating or why they're celebrating, really. I know that a lot of people are sad, but the people that are happy, I'd want to ask them, Okay, so we're happy because Trump rescinded DACA, which Obama never should have done in the first place. But then Trump is saying that he that this is going to work out great and that Congress should take action. And he certainly sounds like he means take action to let them stay. To let people who came into the country illegally, and we keep hearing, oh, through no fault of their own. Citizenship, this is kind of a, a, a Blagojevich moment here. It's a valuable thing. Living in America is a valuable thing. A lot of the world is very poor. Even the poor in America are rich by global standards. A lot of folks want to come here. Being able to be here is a valuable thing. And... In every other area of the law, when someone takes a valuable thing and gives it to you, in this case, when parents give illegally presents, not like Christmas presents, but the ability to be present in the United States, in any other area of law, we would say, well, look, you know, the you, know, you do the crime, you do the time. I mean, you can't keep the proceeds of the ill-gotten gains. But on this issue, because it's the emotional resonance, it's just all a media narrative that's been constructed here. That's why this is being treated as different. And I'm not saying that I don't have sympathy for the... I have a lot of sympathy for them. It's It stinks to have... It, it, assuming, and we're always told that, oh, they came when they were four, they were ten, and, you know, the, uh, look, look, look at the ones who were serving the military. They're picking the most sympathetic, most understandable cases and acting like that's the case for everybody. It's not like anybody showed up here when they were 20, and now they're 30, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm a dreamer. Yeah, that, there's no way that's happening, right? There's no way there's... Think about it. The way they talk about the DACA program, it's like it's the only government-administered program in history that doesn't have a massive amount of waste, fraud, and abuse. But you can't talk about that, right? This is... We're all supposed to celebrate. You see, at some level, this is about sovereignty, rule of law, but it's also part of that cultural battle that Trumpism harnessed and that Donald Trump took all the way to the Oval Office, that the Democratic Party is fond of this concept that non-Americans are somehow better than, harder working than, and superior to Americans. It's it's become a form of virtue signaling. You know, uh, people from particularly the third world developing nations, which is a kind of way of saying pretty poor countries that really need to get things together and get and get moving on a whole bunch of areas. Uh, that that they are just inherently more more virtuous. More, they're more law abiding. They're harder working than you, lazy Americans. What the heck is that? Why do I have to hear that from Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Cory Booker and Barack Obama and what? This is nonsense. But this is on the left. It's a a big way to. Signal your virtue. Oh, I'm such a good person. I'm I'm all about the dreamers. I'm all about the dreamers. We have allowed the left to define this on their own terms. Both, I mean, literally define it in terms of the language, but also the areas of this that we focus on are the ones that are. This is the most sympathetic battleground of the immigration debate for the left for the Democratic Party. Period. And you'll notice that this is where all the this is where all the current action is. This is what we're all talking about. We're not talking about. 
criminal aliens anymore who get released and kill people and do bad stuff and sanctuary cities and a porous border, all of the concerns that come with that. We're not spending more time. The government is not spending more resources, at least not that I've seen yet, figuring out how much does this actually cost us, the illegal immigrant issue in this country? How many more legal immigrants, if there is an amnesty, can we expect to come in, given that we have not secured our borders? We're not doing any of that. We're talking about dreamers. And dreamers is just really an issue, but because of the way the media set this up is, are you a mean person or not? Because if you're a mean person, then you're all like, oh, the Constitution and America and sovereignty, blah, blah, blah. If you're a nice person, you're like, dreamers. They are the, they are the, the engines of our economy. They are our future. The dreamers are our future. I got a lot of dreams, a lot of dreams that haven't come true, a lot of dreams I've fought really hard for. It didn't happen. No one's ever called me a dreamer. And I've one been obeying the law for a long time and two paying taxes for a long time and three served my country. And I get to get lectured by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the rest of them about how great the dreamers are all the time. And how I'm a bad person because I have some questions about this whole immigration policy that we have where the law doesn't really matter. What Obama did, I mean, how far away is this really from just nullification? I'm just we're just not going to enforce those laws. What Obama did is from a constitutional perspective, very there's very little difference from a Republican president. And I would kind of like this, actually, just coming and saying, you know what, we're just going to tell the IRS that, you know, no more. If you pay 10% of your taxes, we're going to say that that's all it has to be, or 10% of your income. So we're just going to forget about Congress and blah, blah, blah with their big tax code. Let's just do a 10% flat tax. Nobody gets prosecuted if they pay their 10%. Nobody gets harassed by the IRS if they pay their 10%. I mean, that sounds kind of cool. I would like it, but I would recognize that that's not valid from the perspective of separation of powers. That stuff matters. If I have to obey all the laws that I don't like... The Democrats have to obey the immigration laws, too. They don't get to just sort of pick and choose. But lawlessness is really at the heart of the Democratic Party on the immigration issue. Well, on a whole bunch of issues, but on immigration more than any other that I can think of off the top of my head. They're just in favor of lawlessness. Why aren't Republicans forcing them? Why aren't Republicans forcing them to have a discussion about, so does everyone get to stay? Okay, maybe the rapists and murderers who are also illegal immigrants, they'll get sent back to their home countries. But... Does everyone else get to stay? Because if that's the case, does anyone who arrived yesterday get to stay? Where, where do we draw the line? I'm, there, I'm sure there are people that are here a year ago that are just as nice and friendly and hardworking as some of the dreamers that are covered under DACA. Do they get to stay? Well, isn't sending them home heartless and mean? They want to be part of the American family, too. So where do we draw the line? If we don't draw the line anywhere, do we have a country anymore? Or do we just have a... I don't know, uh, a rest stop in a soup kitchen. I mean, w- w- what's going on here? What are we doing? Democrats, though, it's just about the short term. It's just about the power grab. All right, every single line here is lit, so I, I know we got a lot of calls. I want to get you in on this. North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Joseph. Hey, bud. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for calling in. Good. Thanks a lot. I was a uh, government service uh, political military person in um, Africa on that, Stuttgart, Germany. And what I wanted to raise is it's just I was there for seven years and I'm a German speaker. And uh, the parallels between what happened in, in Germany and here, it's just like deja vu. For instance, uh, Merkel, Merkel refused to put you know, she opened up the borders 
in 2015, refused to put a cap on it, and she paid a big price because it gave, helped give rise to this uh, party alternative for Germany. And uh, the other thing is about the manipulated press. I heard the exact same stuff that you've been bringing up. For instance, the press was saying initially that all the refugees are healthy and they won't be a burden on our, our social welfare system, which turned out not to be true. Then it says we're bringing in doctors and lawyers. And again, that wasn't true. And the German, the German system is very hard to work with because you have to speak the language and it's very bureaucratic. So I wanted to say, and then they're saying in Germany, well, we'll integrate them this time because for the last 50 years, the Turkish population by and large hasn't integrated it's just amazing because I, I was always making jokes that Merkel's boyfriend is Obama, and I think they were working uh, together on this whole thing. For instance, a lot of the refugees there know what to say. They say they're from Iraq, Syria, or Afghanistan, but they're not, and they, the authorities can't question them, or they'll lose their passport, which delays the process. Now, Germany is deporting um, refugees if they don't meet this criteria, but it's at a trickle, and I imagine these people will also be get amnesty. Remember, they had about a million refugees uh, estimated in 2015. But what bothers me the most, Buck, is I think there's a higher coordinated thing going on here. Like in Europe, I'm sure it was Erdogan, Erdogan opening up the refugees picket in uh, 2015, especially. But I saw the same stuff there, like single men coming over at first, then they want to bring their uh, families that are in refugee camps in Jordan and uh, Iraq over. And then even while they're under this asylum, undetermined status, and then then the children and the company minors started coming, too. So I think there's some scary stuff going on. But I really appreciate that you're keeping the pressure on because what you're saying, it's it's very dangerous. We've got to nip it in the bud. You can't have open borders in a social welfare state. That doesn't Milton Friedman said it well. And so did Joseph, <laughs> our friend out of North Carolina. Thank you for calling in, Joseph. I do appreciate it. Uh, Shields High. Grace in Florida, WFLF. Hey, Grace. Hey, Shields High. How are Shields you? Shields High. I'm good. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, so you're very welcome. I just wanted to kind of relay my story. Um, I moved here from Columbia, South America. My father was an engineer, brought us to the state. You know, we had an agreement. We got green cards coming in, follow the rules, follow the law. There was a lot of value that was placed. And I proudly say that it's an honor and a privilege to be a citizen of this country. Um, our parents always told us that you're one decision away from the citizenship being taken away from you because we're naturalized citizens. So any, everybody that wants to come to this country, there's value when you follow the rules because what you're going to attain is in fact something precious. So basically everyone needs to follow the rules, follow the law, Follow the rules. Yeah, I mean, earned earned citizenship clearly comes with a, a state of mind and, and a sense of of purpose and, and also a sense that one is is blessed, right? Because you have to go through all of that and you appreciate it. I mean, this is what every immigrant that I know who's gone through the process successfully ha- has a particular appreciation for this country that can only come actually through through earning citizenship and doing it the right way. And I just think it's it's a slander and, and it's really uh, it's really unfortunate. And of course, it's done because it's politically effective that Republicans are just anti-immigrant now. That's what that's what's being said when we're talking about with DACA, a small percentage 
of illegal aliens in the country and acting as though they're not just representative of the whole in terms of their circumstances. But, you know, you had Obama yesterday saying, uh, writing on his Facebook page, they want to start new businesses, staff our labs, serve in our military and otherwise contribute to the country we love. So is that now, uh, Grace, just the, the barrier? If you want to come here and contribute, and I mean, a lot of them are not going to be serving in the military or, or staffing labs, by the way. But anyway, if you want to just come here and contribute, who are we to tell you no? I mean, that's the Democrats' position now. Yeah, and I will tell you one thing, that when I got my citizenship, I actually had to take two witnesses with me. Okay, these were family members that knew about me and my family and sit down and, and serve as witnesses to my character and the character of my family. So even the rules were different then. Yeah, it's, and, you know, is, is it all just one big joke now, Grace? Is that what we're supposed to think? Because the way the press talks about it and the way the, the Democrats and many Republicans discuss the issue, they just have, they have very little respect for those who go through the process legally. Shields High, thank you very much for calling in. I appreciate hearing from somebody who has firsthand experience with this. We only got one more call. We only got a little about a minute and change, but Jenna in Alaska on KENI. Hey, Jenna. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks for calling. Good. I actually um, just wanted to say that I am not so sure this DACA rescinding um, by President Trump is is about DACA as much as it's about giving the Republicans some bargaining chips now to get Congress to work on a whole bunch of other things that they've been refusing to come to the table to work work with each other on. So... I, I personally think it was a brilliant strategical move. Um, I think that his buzzwords in his conference um, continuing to say Congress, 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 um, I think was sort of his way of dropping dropping the hint saying now you've now you've got something that both sides you know want to do so get it done. All right, Jenna. Um, well, I'll address that a bit more in a few minutes. I think when we talk about the debt ceiling deal and the way that congress is going right now but uh thank you for calling in from alaska shields high yeah let's talk about this there's a, there's a debt ceiling deal that is in place and here's the basic headline everyone's saying trump sided with the democrats he's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth the buck never stops senator chuck schumer said that what trump did on daca he said this yesterday. It was heartless. It was heartless. Chuck Schumer. Uh, he said it was heartless, but this is what Chuck Schumer used to sound like on the issue of illegal immigration back way, way back when, in 2009. The American people are fundamentally pro-legration and anti-illegal immigration. We will only pass comprehensive reform when we recognize this fundamental concept. First, illegal immigration is wrong, and a primary goal of comprehensive immigration reform must be to dramatically curtail future illegal immigration. Second, operational control of our borders through significant additional increases in infrastructure, technology, and border personnel must be achieved within a year of enactment. I mean, you know, he's lying to you, right? That's what that was all about. That's what the Democrats were doing. They were pretending to be border security hawks so that they could slip through an amnesty. And by the time we figured out that we're just going to get a, uh, just going to get the amnesty and never get the security, never get the 
control at the border, never get the sovereignty back, meh, be all over. What are you going to do then? Nothing you can do. It does make you think at, at some level as well. I, I, but I want to get, I know I said I get to the debt limit. And we're, we're just about there. I just had a few more thoughts on the uh, immigration thing. Um, what do Democrats believe makes, what makes someone American? Is it, ju- is it just the legal status of being American? Is there anything that when one comes to this country and goes through a process of assimilation, what is it? What is our, our shared ideology now? It, it can't be respect for the rule of law because the whole premise of illegal immigration is that these people are breaking the law, but Democrats don't care about it. Can't be respect for the rule of law because you have the previous uh, the previous president just taking powers into his hands that were not his. <laughs> or to, to put it uh, gently, Senator Feinstein even said that, you know, maybe that wasn't really totally legit what Obama did on DACA. So- Was DACA legal? Uh, DACA uh, was executive order. Uh, legal is is the law of passage of something. I, you know, there are ten attorneys general that are prepared to sue. I don't want to get into that. The point is, DACA is here, and we've got eight hundred thousand young people. Well, your answer indicates your answer indicates though that it's on shaky legal ground. It is. That's why we need to pass a law. Yeah, and that's just another way of saying that it wasn't legal. It wasn't right. Obama shouldn't have done it. He did not have the legitimate authority to do it, but he did it anyway, and the press was quiet about it. And they didn't talk about creeping fascism. They didn't talk about a monarchical executive branch under Obama. But under Trump, you know, we're here from from day one, even before day one of the Trump presidency, it was Trump is Hitler. Trump is a fascist. The media seemed to believe that. Uh, and now they're just engaged, and she mentioned this, and I, I wanted to touch on this for for a few moments here, too. There are attorney ge- attorneys general from 15 states and the District of Columbia are suing to save DACA. Uh, they have they have no they have no place here. Th- this is just th- this is nonsense. But I, I can't say that I can trust the courts, which are in many ways the most effective. I mean, you have a never Trump judiciary in effect in this country the courts will do everything in their power to be essential components of the hashtag resistance not all of them but a lot of them so there you have these uh, attorneys general from various states here's what the washington post reports on them a group of attorneys generals from these 15 states etc etc filed a lawsuit Wednesday to stop the administration from winding down the DACA program, which granted a reprieve from deportation to undocumented immigrants who came to the United States as children. By the way, some of them probably came and they're like 16, right? But that's a side note. And we keep referring to them as children like they're all four. Anyway, the suit filed in federal court in the Eastern District of New York alleges that rescinding the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program was a culmination of President Trump's off-stated commitments whether personally held, stated to appease some portion of his constituency or some combination thereof, to punish and disparage people with Mexican roots. The suit says that unwinding the program would damage states because DACA beneficiaries pay taxes, go to state universities, and contribute in other ways, and that phasing out the program would jeopardize their ability to do those things. I mean, this is just an entirely frivolous legal position. This is this is malarkey. 
to put it politely. There's other words that I would rather use, but I can't. It is just the attorneys general of these states engaged in virtue signaling via high office, right? They are using the powers given to them by the people in order to burnish their own credentials and probably get ready for a run for office. Because the federal government, this has already been established. It was established with Arizona when Arizona state law was overridden by the Obama Department, the DOJ, and the courts. They said, sorry, only the federal government does immigration policy stuff. You don't get a say, and you don't get to help. We don't even want you. You're not even allowed to help, Arizona. That was what the federal government said, and that was what the courts agreed with the government previously on. So now you're going to have these states that say, well, you know, they pay taxes and, you know, we like they staff our labs and they're just starting businesses. And you'll notice, OK, some of them probably also commit crimes, go on welfare. But like we're never allowed to talk about that. Why do we only hear one side of that story? Because this is all about the power of narrative and manipulating the emotions of the public for the benefit of the Democratic Party, for the benefit of the Democratic Party as a political institution that just exists not to uh, achieve any particular principle, but just exists for its own, for the purposes of its own power, for achieving and wielding power, gaining and wielding power. So you got these uh, lawsuits that are, that are going to be coming out. Uh, I just... I wonder at what point we can have a more mature and serious discussion about this as a nation, about what to do about those who are here illegally. Um, I would think that Republicans would be out there making the case for how we need to change interior enforcement, we need to verify, and we need to do a whole bunch of things so that we don't get yet another wave of amnesty. Unless the Democrats really believe, back to my earlier question, that American is whatever whatever the Democratic Party at any point in time says it is. There's nothing particular about We don't have a particular culture. We certainly don't have a language, according to Democrats. It's whatever language anybody shows up speaking. That's as American as apple pie. Can't have the official language be English. That's racist. Plenty of countries have the official language as English, but they're, they're, it's, it's racist. Okay. Well, what makes someone an American? In the eyes of a Democrat today, in the eyes of Chuck Schumer, although as we know, he changes you know, he changes his tune on this stuff all the time. What makes you American? I don't think Democrats have much of an answer. It's, well, will you vote for me? If the answer is yes, yeah, will, will you vote straight ticket Democrat? If the answer is yes, hey, congrats, you're American. Nothing else matters. Uh, obeying our laws certainly doesn't matter. And speaking English doesn't matter. And there's no particular culture that we're allowed to speak of as an American culture without hearing about either cultural imperialism or white supremacy or any number of things. So I, I just wonder, on, on a philosophical level, I don't have an answer for you, but I'm also very... Uh, I want to make sure that we're all clear that Democrats don't have an answer either, and they're supposed to. I don't know what they think an American is, and they don't know either. But they're pretty sure that anybody that will vote for them counts. All right, the, the debt ceiling. I know, I've been saying we're going to get... 
I'm going to tell you right now. I'm a, I'm a little frustrated. I don't see the uh, I don't see the 4D chess here. Maybe I'm 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 missing some part of the matrix. Maybe I need to get rebooted, or I I need to, you know, pick up the phone and have like Neo show up next to me and Morpheus and uh, you know I, I don't I'm not seeing how this is good. What just happened here? Uh, the Trump administration, not the administration, the president. It's a headline in the Wall Street Journal, a headline in CNN, a headline in New York Times. Trump sides with Democrats on debt deal. Why would he do that? What's the purpose? Republicans cave. We know that. That will factor in this discussion. We will get into that. And also, oh, by the way, for those of you who are wondering, I have an update for you about Hillary's book tour. What happened? It's coming up later. So later this hour, we'll talk about that. Welcome back. Buck Sexton here with you all. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, This is the headline on the Wall Street Journal. Trump sides with Democrats on three-month debt limit increase tied to Harvey aid. Paul Ryan had earlier called the plan ridiculous and unworkable. Here is from some of the story. President Donald Trump on Wednesday said he accepted congressional Democratic leaders' proposal to raise the federal government borrowing limit for just three months, part of a Hurricane Harvey aid bill, hours after House Speaker Paul Ryan sharply criticized the plan. In a midday meeting at the White House, Mr. Trump agreed to a package that includes an initial installment of $7.85 billion for Harvey victims and a three-month extension of both government funding and a three-month increase in the debt limit. We essentially came to a deal, Mr. Trump said, after saying the combined package will be, quote, very good. Uh, do you remember when there was talk not long ago? I, I hate to be the one. I'm, I'm Right now, I know, I'm a wet blanket, right? I'm, I'm the... Uh, piece of barbecued chicken that just fell on your your white pant leg or something. I mean, I, I'm I'm no fun right now. I understand that. This is not what anybody's going to want to hear. But do do you remember when that happened recently by the way? It's so uh people said put the da- dab the water and then you know you can no, it's stained. It might as well. Not that I was wearing, you know, well, actually no, white pants are cool. That's fine. I like white pants. Uh Past Labor Day is not a thing anymore, right? Before Labor Day, we got rid of that. I don't know. I don't know enough about fashion. I'll ask Molly. Here's what I recall. We were told that on the debt ceiling, Republicans would make a stand. Like Leonidas at the gates, at the hot gates, the pass at Thermopylae. Or if you are more of a Lord of the Rings guy, uh, like when Gandalf stands up against the Balrog. Yes, you shall not pass. Right? That's This is when Paul Ryan was going to be clad in armor with his fellow Republicans, standing up against the army of Xerxes as it tried to spend and spend and spend. And they'd get a wall, which would have really helped it to pass the Thermopylae, I should note. They did build a wall, but it wasn't Really a, a great one. Uh, do you remember what I told you? I think it was last week, maybe it was a week before, that the wall, uh, that funding for a wall, for a border wall, 
and using the debt ceiling to get it would not happen. So I wasn't even going to spend much time on the show talking about it. Now, this is not so much for me to sit here and tell you, you know, oh, I'm, I'm taking a victory lap in the Freedom Hut, which wouldn't be a particularly big lap because it's kind of snug in here. Um, although it is bigger than like my first three apartments in New York. I think one of the reasons I've been cooking so much recently is because I've never really had a kitchen before, at least not as an adult. I'm 35. I've got my first kitchen. Woo! Yeah! Um, maybe one day I'll own property. That's the one thing that, you know, millennials won't mess up, the housing market, because we can't get into it. Um, but back to the debt ceiling. We're spending all this money. Congress has the power of the purse. We've come to this this impasse time and time again. And here we are now with an opportunity to take a stand and to get concessions. Remember, Republicans have a majority in the House. They have a majority in the Senate. What are they gonna, and they've got a, a, a president who's like, I'll sign it. You know, put some cool stuff in front of me, I'll sign it. Whatever. When does that actually happen? When do they get real legislation or concessions via the budgetary process? Why is it that Republicans always, always, always cave? They just cave, man. They are, they are, you know artists when it comes to caving this is what they do so i guess that makes them uh i don't know they're artists when it comes to caving it's it's troubling to see but how much more obvious could it have been how much more obvious could it have been um i told you it would happen and here we are and just to give you some of the 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 details of this uh trump said the debt limit would be suspended until december 15th So we've got a few months here, and the Democrats are probably going to try to stick some stuff into this and get things that they want. So Democrats are in the majority, they get what they want. Democrats are in the minority, they get what they want. When do do Republicans, or forget Republicans, when do those of us who want something different with this administration and with this Republican majority Congress, when do we get something? When do we get the promises that were made? When is the fulfillment going to happen when do they make good on the iou to each and every one of us who supported donald trump voted for a republican voted for trump or anyone else down ticket and or down ticket when do we get something we just they just gave this up i have to ask and i look i'm still very hopeful that trump and i love his stuff against the media most of the time and you know I, i see a lot of a lot of the Trump stuff I just like. I don't know. I don't know what to say. But how does this make any sense? You're going along with Pelosi and Schumer? This is all they do. They live for this. For making Republicans bend the knee on the debt ceiling. For convincing everyone that a government shutdown would be some terrible set. Governments have shut down lots of times, right? It's all fine. Everyone that really needs to be going to work, who works for the government, when a shutdown happens, is still going to work. And everyone does get paid. So it's not what they pretend that it is. No one will make the case. And now we're told, oh, well, we got to push it to December. And then, then they'll just raise it again because, oh, my gosh, the midterms. We are already here, folks. We're already at the point where Republicans are promising to do it the next time. They're going to fight the next time. And I, I don't know what to say. I, what is Trump's end game with this? 
why would he support Pelosi and Schumer and the three-month, you know, Republicans didn't want a, a year-long debt ceiling increase. So now you've got a three-month debt limit extension. Still spending more money, still running up the, the debt. I, I, I don't understand. I, look, I'm just going to say it. I don't even know if Trump understands what the long game is here. I, I, maybe he just got frustrated with the Republicans. I think it's quite clear that he, he doesn't particularly like Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell. I don't, really, I don't really like Donald Trump. But, you know, that's that shouldn't be, that's neither here nor there. Um, but now they're going to tie Harvey aid to this as well. Uh, Republicans show up with a straight flush and they lose. They lose the card game every time. They have a winning hand and they just fold. They have the leverage and they cave. And on the debt ceiling fight, I told you, this is why it wasn't even, oh, you know, they're going to go debt ceiling and the wall. No wall funding. No wall being built. How many times have we promised there'd be a wall? By Trump and by Republicans. When are we allowed to say, whoa, hold on a second. You're double-crossing us. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Got Mike in Delaware on the line. Hey, Mike, what's going on? Oh, not much. I was talking to my next-door neighbor and his friend who snuck into the United States about eight years ago. He has a construction company and is successful. And he turned around and told me he spent seven seven days and nights in, in the hospital, and Medicaid paid for it. He didn't pay a thing. Hmm. So you're saying he's an illegal immigrant? He's an illegal immigrant. And he's getting Medicaid. You see, Mike, I hear stories like this all the time, but then when we say this, you get the so-called policy experts and the pundits on TV and the media complex. They come out and they say, oh, no, illegals can't get federal benefits. But they do all the time. Yeah, well, the thing is, this guy's walking around anywhere from three to five thousand dollars in his wallet all the time. Every time I see this guy, and yet here he is getting Medicaid. He's already had uh, supposedly gotten married and had two kids. So I wonder who paid for the kids to be born. <laughs> well, I mean, if you go, we all know if you go to the ER, it doesn't matter if you can pay or not. You get you get treatment, right? So that's this notion that illegals don't receive any taxpayer-funded benefits whatsoever is just that's just nonsense that's not true and in fact illegals can go to school and illegals can go to college and they can go to subsidized uh you know colleges and they can get driver's licenses and they can go to the emergency room and they uh, and the moment that they're that an illegal has a child in this country now that now they've created a circumstance where oh well we can't break up families so all you really have to do is be here long enough that you can have a kid here, and then it doesn't really matter, right? Then the law is irrelevant. And people are responding to the incentives. They're responding to the lack of enforcement. They are responding to the lawlessness of Democrats on this issue. And it's time that we we either decide that we're serious about this, or I don't know, man. I mean, it, it turns into a kind of smoke him if you got him situation. I don't know. I don't know what happens. Because if, if it's well, just anyone who comes here can pay, well, then I don't know what America looks like in 10 years. Especially if they're not paying taxes. Well, this is the other thing, too. I mean, half of the people in the country legally aren't paying any income taxes currently. So we're always told, oh, they're contributing so much to the economy. Uh, and, and Mike Shieldsheimer, thank you for calling in. This is where the math just doesn't add up. 
half the people who come to the half the people who live in the United States currently who are of the age where they could be paying taxes don't pay any federal income tax whatsoever. And then we said, oh well, they pay you know sales tax, and okay, well, fine, I'd I'd be very happy to just pay sales tax. Oh, uh, but also. If you don't, and this is where the, the Cato Institute folks and and the the libertarian open borders crowd always they, they always have a little bit of a fit over this one. They get very they get very uh, snippy when I point out or when anyone points out. You know, it, to say that they add to the economic activity of the country doesn't really tell us much. Are they adding more in terms of productivity, wages, earnings, and growth from within the economy? You know, GDP per capita. Uh, then they take out in the form of benefits. And not just this year, what about in 10 years? I, you know, if the government is going to mandate that I live by this preposterous tax code and that I have to pay for all this stuff, then I think that I think the people should also be in a position, the American people should be in a position to determine who comes and who doesn't into the country, who stays and who doesn't. Uh, and if we give that up, what's really left? What do we become after that? It's already happening. I mean, you have a, a rapid transformation of the country into one in which laws are that laws that are politically inconvenient are just abandoned. Uh, but that's what's going to speak of laws that are a perfect transition. Speaking of laws that are politically inconvenient and getting abandoned. Remember that lady who sent all those classified emails to people on unsecured servers and on uh, computers and devices that are legally not allowed to carry that information. Remember, her name was Hillary Clinton. Hello. Uh, she's back and she's right. She's writing a book as you know, or she's written a book. I should say she's paid someone else to write a book and put her name on it, but she's got a book out as you know, it's called what happened. And she is, I don't know if this surprised you or not, She's going after the burn. What do you mean, Hillary? What's going on here? She's going after the burn in this book, What Happened. And I saw somebody say that Hillary, or that in this, she claims that Bernie was more or less promising to buy everybody a pony. Or that everyone gets a pony. That he was making promises. That Bernie Sanders running against Hillary Clinton was the equivalent of like the high school student council president who's like, no homework and jacuzzis in every locker room and we can wear whatever we want to school every day. Well, you know, private schools, you can't do that. You know what I mean? And that kid maybe gets elected, but turns out that there's not room for jacuzzis and like motorized scooters for everybody to just go hang out in the in the courtyard um that's not in the budget for the school so it doesn't end up happening but it's a great way to get elected and that's kind of what bernie sanders was doing like, free college free this free that the rich will pay of course the rich already pay a whole lot when it comes to taxes and perhaps more to the point uh college being free i don't think is a good idea i think people should understand that it is a product and I don't want to go down my whole long discussion with you. I, I can't help myself, but a year or two between high school and college for everybody would be a, a good idea, I think. I, I disagree with this. You're a permanent student for about half the country or so, or whatever. It's 30 or 40% of the country. You're a permanent student until you're 22. I mean, that's not not the way that it should be, and especially if you're going to rack up tens of thousands of dollars of debt. But Bernie was promising that... Everybody gets a pony and a jacuzzi. I mean, you know, Bernie was promising that there were going to be a lot of benefits for folks. 
And how is he? How would the math work out? You know, who knows? But Hillary is upset about this. Uh, she, I, I, I <laughs> she writes. I don't know if. Oh, sorry. Here we go. Let me let me try to get. I'm I'm reading this directly from a page. A a uh, a snippet, an excerpt of Hillary Clinton's book. Quote: Because we agreed on so much, Bernie couldn't make an argument against me in this area on policy. So he had to resort to innuendo and impugning my character. Some of his supporters, the so-called Bernie bros, took to harassing my supporters online. It got ugly and more than a little sexist. When I finally challenged Bernie during a debate to name a single time I changed a position or a vote because of, financial, because of a financial contribution, he couldn't come up with anything. Nonetheless, his attacks cause lasting damage, making it harder to unify progressives in the general election and paving the way for Trump's crooked Hillary campaign. I should note, Trump's naming of other people and really branding, Trump did a better job of branding his opponents than any politician I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, to just to refer to her as crooked Hillary was a very powerful, uh, very powerful tool of messaging. And it worked incredibly well. But on to Hillary and, and blaming Bernie, what you see here, I mean, Hillary's got a, a, she got a million excuses. Oh, she's got so many excuses. What happened is, what, what happened was, uh, she can't ever stop and think, I suppose. And I don't really know how much, you know, other than just it's amusing to me that she's held up still as a, uh, a great stateswoman and a paragon of virtue and all this other stuff. The Democrats still have this real affection for Hillary, even though she, you know, was a two-time, two-time presidential aspirant loser, and both times really thought that it was a, a shoo-in, that there was no way that she couldn't win. And instead of thinking that she come, that she now is part of a a losing brand, that maybe. They you know, shouldn't be supporting Hillary Clinton and, and the Clinton. I just it's a matter of time before we're going to get le- lectures from Chelsea, who's never done a real day's work in her life. I, I don't know her. It's not personal, but I'm sorry. These children of the political celebrity class, celebrity slash politician or politician slash celebrity, they really don't do work. Because until you've showed up, I mean, this is an, a, a major defining characteristic of who we are as people. Until you have had to show up somewhere as a, as a human being, as a person, as an American who does a job you don't really like for people who don't care that you're there and, in fact, would be perfectly happy to replace you, at least in the beginning. And you have the stress of knowing that if you don't perform, if you don't do it up to expectations and you lose that job, you can't pay your rent and you don't like it. You don't know what the next step is. No one appreciates you. You're under stress. And the whole situation is not exactly what you were dreaming about as a 16 year old thinking that you'd be the next president or whatever. Until you've done that, you don't know what that's like. So for someone like a Chelsea Clinton, who just goes from one you know, one uh, make, you know, sort of make pretend job with a fancy title. To another. I'll, I'll work at McKinsey and I'll work at Goldman Sachs and I'll just go from I'll go from Stanford to Oxford to Stanford to Harvard to McKinsey. It's just one gold plated resume bullet after another. 
without ever having to show up, roll up the sleeves, and get it done. I I find few things uh, more annoying in particularly among my generation than this oh you know look at me look at what i've look at what i've done because of mummy and daddy now let's all pretend like i did it and i know some of you are probably making you know you're drawing conclusions about some other folks this would apply to and i'm not going to argue with you but chelsea clinton's a particularly annoying one um and the clinton brand somehow is still viewed as valuable for democrats even though I, I would think that the stench of loserdom is strong on it, but I, Hillary's book, it, it can't really be about making money because she's worth over $100 million for speeches, quote-unquote, I mean, peddling influence. That's why, if I'm Menendez, if I'm Senator Menendez, who, oh, by the way, you know, he's that first, the first U.S. senator, sitting senator in like over 30 years to face 12 criminal counts on on corruption if i'm senator menendez i'm like look let's be real here what i did compared to what hillary did come on come on come on everybody come on you know what i mean come on that would be my defense <laughs> i think that actually might work i think you might get kind of far with that one because it's true yeah because it's true but why is she writing this book what happened because she i think it just can't she can't process that she's not the president, and she's never going to be. It's not going to happen. Never going to happen. That is, that she's in a, a state of denial, and so she's going after the burn. The burn is also not going to be president. What do you mean? I got, I got forty or fifty good years left. Come on. Uh, no, I don't think, I don't think it's going to happen for Bernie either. You know, you're such an ageist, Sexton. I tell you, you're an ageist. Uh, I don't think Bernie's going to make it to the presidency. So. Who is the Democrat going to be that they hold up as the future? I, I really don't know. But this book is pitting Democrat against Democrat. Oh, we got Jeffrey Tubin. Wait, before we go to break, here, here's a CNN analyst Jeffrey Tubin, who's like, it's like the DNC had a top lawyer to go on TV, and it's Jeffrey Tubin. That's what this guy's analysis is like. But here's what he says. Bernie Sanders set up the crooked Hillary image, you know, the, through, through yeah. talking about the speeches to Goldman Sachs, right. talking about how she was in the pocket of Wall Street. That, I think, was used to devastating effect, and especially about the idea of personal corruption, the idea that there was something about her that was untrustworthy, which was something that, that Bernie Sanders made, made very clear. Is he kidding? Something about Hillary Clinton that's untrustworthy? I mean, is there anything about her that's trustworthy? Better way to approach it. But you want to go on CNN, be a Democrat, get favorable to Clinton. I mean, everyone over there, when I was working over there during the election as a, as a conservative political commentator, which meant that, you know, they were always looking for ways to, uh, you know, kneecap and ambush me. Um, but when I was over there, I mean, it, it felt like everybody was on the Hillary payroll. Really, And some of them were in one way or another. But I digress. Okay, uh, maybe we'll do some uh, update just on some of what I'm seeing here about the uh, hurricane. We've got a lot of other stuff to talk about. Next hour, I think the single most important topic we're going to get to is about Obama's people trying to come up with justifications for his inaction on the Syrian genocide, because this really is a stain on the record of the Obama presidency, and I'll explain to you why. But it also should, it's, it's a reminder for all of us that 
Democrats are constantly trying to rewrite history. They're always trying to find ways to construct a narrative that is favorable uh, for themselves at the expense of the truth. It's just what they do. And the media is, is a prime example of it. But even at the level of writing actual history or doing historical analysis, they do it there, too. Buck Sexton here, back with you all, team. Walter in Alabama. Well, Freedom Hut, sir. Walter? Walter. <laughs> yeah, there you are. Hey, what's up, buddy? Hey, hey, I just wanted to say uh, I don't quite understand what the problem is. You never received $349,000 uh, for a few weeks' pay at the uh, national television. I think it was six hundred grand that Chelsea Clinton was paid to be on NBC for a total of like 23 minutes over the course of a year. $600,000. Yeah, I, you know, that's only $30,000 a minute. What are you talking about? You never made money like that? Yeah, it's not like NBC was just trying to buy off the Clintons by paying the Clinton daughter a whole lot of money for doing nothing, right? I mean, you know, th- this is this is why people have so little uh, so little patience for hearing the media say, oh, we're not biased, you know. When was the last time a, re- a, re- a Republican uh, had a had a job given to them like that by a media network? 20 20 minutes, 600 grand. And she was terrible, by the way. Not to be a jerk. Thanks for calling in, Walter. Not to be a, a mean, but she was really, really bad. Hello. I'm on television. Yes. I will ask you a question now because my mommy and daddy are famous. Uh, all right. Switching, switching gears here. That was my Chelsea Clinton impression. I got to work on that one, but you get the idea. Uh, switching gears here, I don't have a whole... I mean, tomorrow we'll, we'll be joined by some experts on the issue of uh, the hurricane. Here, here's what... Because uh, Hurricane Irma, it's looking like something out of, a, out of a sci-fi movie in terms of its devastating effect, but it's real. Here's what Trump said. The leaders here with us today, and we have a lot to discuss, including the fact that there's a new and seems to be record-breaking hurricane heading right toward Florida and Puerto Rico and other places. We'll see what happens. We'll know in a very short period of time, but it looks like it could be something that will be uh, not good. And here's Governor Rick Scott of Florida on the evacuations. Evacuations. Right now, there are mandatory evacuations order in effect for all the visitors in the Florida Keys. Tonight, this this order will go into effect for all residents. If you're told to evacuate, get out quickly. I cannot stress this enough. Do not ignore evacuation orders. Remember, we can rebuild your home. We cannot rebuild your life. We will have to see how devastating this hurricane turns out to be. Uh, It's already hit some islands really hard in the Caribbean. Category 5, 185 mile per hour winds. Uh, So we'll talk more about that tomorrow. And just as a reminder, I'm going to be in Los Angeles uh, tomorrow. So Freedom Hut LA and... uh, I'll be out on Friday. We'll have a fabulous guest host in the Freedom Hut chair. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. How do we ensure that never again isn't an empty slogan or merely an aspiration, but also a call to action? I believe we start by doing what we are doing today, 
by bearing witness, by fighting the silence that is evil's greatest co-conspirator. That was President Obama back in 2009 speaking at the Holocaust Museum in D.C. For those who haven't been, I recommend to you uh, that when you are in D.C., you make the trip. Um, I'm somebody who thought before he went that he was uh, well-informed about the Second World War and about the genocide in the Nazi death camps, Uh, but it is a powerful experience, and I promise you it is one you will remember to go to the uh, Holocaust Museum. Uh, But back to Obama's speech there, he said, never again, and he made quite clear with his words that never again means that you can't just stand idly by, that you have to take action, that you have to uh, bring the fight, if needed, to evildoers. Now, President Obama is the recipient, or was the recipient, of a Nobel Peace Prize early on in his presidency for essentially just being Obama, as you know. But now we can look back on eight years of his time in office and of his philosophy in particular on the issue of intervention in genocide. And the fact of the matter is that the Obama administration did next to nothing to prevent, at least in its early years, the Syrian genocide, the Syrian civil war, which also had as a component of it the extermination of Yazidis at the hands of the Islamic State, Assad's usage of chemical weapons, uh, which I should note is now over two dozen instances, according to the United Nation, of chemical weapons usage. This despite the fact that President Obama said the following as well. We have been very clear to the Assad regime but also to other players on the ground that a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Now, why am I telling you about this? I'm sure you recall some of the back and forth after Obama's red line that was not enforced. Well, the revisionist tendency of Democrats when it comes to history is something you must keep an eye on because they will change the past in order to control the future. And we have an instance of this on display when it comes to the Obama administration and its dithering and President Obama's fecklessness on the issue of genocide in Syria. And we know, we know that they are sensitive to this and how it reflects both on Obama's legacy and on a Democrat party that completely embraced Obama as a genius, as somebody who would understand the world better than any of his predecessors. That's not rooted in fact. That wasn't the case based upon the foreign policy that he implemented. And his bystanderism, if you will, is a sensitive topic now on the issue of Syria, so sensitive, in fact, that a major study at the Holocaust Memorial Museum has been pulled. It has been pulled. This is reported in Tablet Magazine. The problem with this is that it was full of Obama staff who have a vested interest in trying 
to come up with some rationalization, some justification for Obama's weak and uh, rudderless foreign policy on Syria. And you heard his statement at the beginning, never again. We will never allow genocide to happen again. We will come together as a community of nations. We will work with our international partners. We'll do whatever we have to do. Never again must have meaning. That was Obama. But that didn't last very long. Within a couple of years, it became clear that while the de facto leader of the free world, our commander in chief at the time, President Barack Obama, had made promises and drawn red lines, promises about preventing genocide and red lines to enforce that promise. He did not have the courage of his convictions. He was not willing to stand up for the defenseless. Now, some of you, I'm sure, will think, hold on a minute, Buck. The intervention in Syria could have been disastrous. That is a separate issue from Obama standing up and pretending that he would make sure that his global leadership would prevent genocide. We would not allow it to happen. That was his promise. That was his statement. And that was not the reality during Obama's time in office. And there are sensitivities around this. This is from Tablet Magazine. A major United States Holocaust Memorial Museum study of the Obama administration's Syria policy was put on hold last night after portions of the study given to Tablet were greeted with shock and harsh, harsh criticism by prominent Jewish community leaders and thinkers. According to a publicity email sent by the museum, the study was set to be launched in an event at the U.S. Institute for Peace on September 11th in Washington, D.C., and it was overseen by a former U.S. intelligence and national security official under Obama, Cameron Hudson, who is now director of the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide. The paper argued that a variety of factors which were more or less fixed made it very difficult from the beginning for the U.S. government to take effective action to prevent atrocities in Syria even compared with other challenging policy context. Uh, okay, so this study of Obama's Syria policy was put in the hands of a former Obama administration official. And I should note that there are a whole bunch of former Obamaites who have tried to weigh in on this in one way or another. At, here's a quote. At least one of the architects of the Obama administration policy in Syria, former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes, was appointed to the museum's Memorial Council during the closing days of the Obama administration. The council also includes Obama NSC alumni uh, and others who have joined the museum's staff. So you've got Obama national security people who are politicizing the look at genocide in Syria that occurred while Obama was in office because Democrats have to change the past in order to control the future. Democrats have to lie about what has happened, whether it is Democrat support for the KKK, the Democrats' connections to Marxism and communism in this country in the past, to Democrats pretending that the Soviet Union was a much lesser threat than it was, to Democrats uh, as the party of Jim Crow, Democrats as the party of slavery. They've rewritten all of that history. And kids are learning 
lies in school now, if they learn much at all about those topics. They understand, though, just as the Soviets did, that it's not about what happened, it's about what people are led to believe happened. And Obama, as the bystander during genocide in Syria, when he made a point, he made a point of putting people in senior positions in his administration, like Samantha Power, like Susan Rice, who have built careers on what's called R2P, responsibility to protect. They built careers on the promise that international, multilateral, United Nations-style action could prevent genocide. It was a lie. Or at least, it was a lie under the Obama administration because it didn't prevent it. And they then, in their efforts to rewrite the history here, these different Obama officials, this is at the Holocaust Museum, one would think that some basic sense of decency would prevent political machinations from becoming the primary consideration here. But no. But no. Obama officials are relying on hashtag science and hashtag math to try and make it seem like Obama had absolutely no choice. There was nothing that he could do. There was no way that he could have taken a different approach. That a half a million people were going to die in Syria no matter what Obama, and I should note, the international community did because Obama was always a major proponent of international UN-style action to deal with crises. And many of his conservative critics say that's just not reality-based. That's not how it works. But now we have the history of Syria to look at. We don't just have to take guesses here. And this is from this piece in Tablet Magazine, which I recommend to all of you. Using computational modeling and game theory methods, as well as interviews with experts and policymakers, the report asserted, this is the report written by Obama Hacks, to rewrite the history of Obama and his policy in Syria. Quote, the report asserted that greater support for the anti-Assad rebels and the U.S. strikes on the Assad regime after the August 2013 Ghouta chemical weapons attack would not have reduced atrocities in the country and might have conceivably contributed to them. End quote. Not only are the so-called hand-picked experts who are really just Obama toadies, not only are they claiming that Obama's inaction and dithering, and yes, I will say it, cowardice on policy, cowardice on national security and Syria, not only are they trying to claim in this report that he didn't do anything wrong through his inaction, they're trying to make the case that with action he would have made it worse. Shameless. These Obama hacks are shameless. But that is not a surprise at all. The first thing, this is a quote from the piece, the first thing I have to say is uh, that shame on the Holocaust Museum, said Leon Wieseltier, the literary critic and fellow at the Brookings Institution, who slammed the museum for releasing an allegedly scientific study that justifies bystanderism. The museum's exercise in counterfactual history, he suggested, was inherently absurd. Quote, if I had the time, I would gin up a parody version of this that would give us the computational modeling algorithmic counterfactual analysis 
of John McCloy's decision not to bomb the Auschwitz ovens in 1944, I'm sure we could concoct the blanking algorithms for that too. Well done for Mr. Uh, Mr. Um, Weaseltier here. Well done. Uh, he understands what's going on here. This is a Stalinistic style rewriting of history for the purposes. It's not just about people wanting to feel good about themselves. It's not just, oh, you know, Obama is uh, wants to feel like he did better things than he did. And you know, th- this isn't about everybody gets a trophy on foreign policy. This is because there will be another election soon. This is because Obama is held up by the Democrats. He is still the most powerful Democrat in America. His voice is still the most listened to by the progressive left. And if Americans figured out that it was a lot of hot air, a lot of big talk, a lot of grandiose prepared speeches without follow through, without action, without courage, without character on the issue of U.S. foreign policy, maybe then, maybe then we would have a different view of Obama's time in office, of how much we should listen to him now. He just came out yesterday with a big statement, of course, on DACA. And we would rethink the next Democrat, giving the reins of power to the next Democrat who promises to uh, protect the world from the evils and depredations of genocide. Like so much else with Obama, it was all talk. But also, as we saw with the Obama administration time and again, the reality was not nearly as important as controlling the narrative, as changing, manipulating, and erasing facts for the purposes of creating a perception that is favorable to the Democrat Party, to the progressive statists in America. That was the primary goal the half a million dead in Syria, the dozens of mass gassings at Assad's hands, and Obama's utter fecklessness, well, that can be excused all in the service of Democrat power. And that's why you get a report at the Holocaust Museum stating that Obama did a great job even though genocide happened and he didn't do a darn thing about it until it was way too late. Wanted to give you a quick update before we get into some scientific research on differences in math, science, technology, uh, skill distribution between men and women. It's just a theory, but some scientists are looking at it, uh, trying to understand why it is that certain workplace decisions are made by different people. Um, I wanted to update you on, yeah, we'll get there in a second. And then the, sm- the science of attraction as it has to do with smell. We'll get there in a second. Uh, or in a few minutes. But in the meantime, I, I applied to Foster Dog. I haven't even heard back yet. So I guess I'm going to apply. I feel like it's the college application process all over again. I filled out all this stuff. Are you a smoker? When are you at home? Is your, is your environment inviting for a canine friend? You know, all this stuff. And I'm like, yes, I think so. And, and now I'm getting, because I follow them on Instagram, this one dog shelter. And they send me these updates about the dogs, like this one. This quirky-looking 18-month-old Chihuahua mix is a skinny stud with bat-wing ears and Steve Buscemi eyes. 
He's only 10 pounds, but he makes up for his physical size with a great big awesome personality. Okay, I want the Steve Buscemi Chihuahua, you know? I, I, I want to, to give him a home, uh, you know, and, and, and sit and, and maybe watch Steve Buscemi's finest movies like Armageddon, for example, with him. Like, I want to do this, and I haven't been able to do it yet because, I don't know, I guess I'm lost in the bureaucracy. I know it's only been a couple of weeks, but now maybe I have to go volunteer to feed and take care of and, and give affection to and training to dogs just because I want to uh, at another shelter somewhere. So I'm trying to, there's a lot of them in New York City, but I'm, I'm now getting pretty revved up about doing this. And when they, when I'm seeing these photos of, of the Steve Buscemi looking Chihuahua, for example, I'm all, I'm all psyched. I'm like, this guy, I got a big couch. Uh, I like to cook lots of meat. And we all know there's going to be leftovers. I mean, we all know that, uh, you know, if I'm cooking a burger, little Steve Buscemi Chihuahua is going to get a little, little taste of that burger, right? I mean, I know human food, don't feed your dog. By the way, there's gluten-free dog food now. I've been seeing ads for this everywhere, which makes me wonder, is there canine celiac disease? Is that really a thing? Or did a bunch of fancy poodles get together and decide that gluten makes them feel bloated? I, I just want to know because I'm seeing this everywhere. And this is this a trend or is this based, based in... Science. The science is not settled, team. That's certainly one way to approach the issue of male-female variations in the workplace. That's where we are right now. It's a place that we should be having free and open inquiry. But as you know, Google, formerly uh, of the mantra, don't do evil, right? That was their slogan. Uh, Google's been doing some evil. Google fired James Daymore for exactly that getting into the issues of differences in the workplace in terms of not just advancement but professional choices made by men and women and this leads me to want to nerd out a little bit with you right now on that very issue this is from heterodox academy which is an interesting place uh, online to see some uh, different kinds of analysis that are, are rooted in science but the kind of science that will perhaps get you in trouble. Uh, what they're saying, to put it, well, let me actually read to you the pre a bit of the overview here. Quote, in this addendum, we focus on the greater male, greater male variability hypothesis, the GMVH, greater male variability hypothesis, the idea that men are more variable than women on a variety of abilities, interests, and personality traits, and the possibility that males are overrepresented in the upper and lower tails of such distributions. This hypothesis was first proposed by Ellis over a hundred years ago in 1894. It is also the hypothesis that Lawrence Summers was referring to in 2005 when at the National Bureau of Economic Research Conference, he weighed in on the gender gap in science, technology, engineering, and math professions. Like DeMore's memo, which is the guy who got fired from Google, Summers, when he was the president of Harvard, got in a whole bunch of trouble. Um, but 
it is interesting because the central empirical claim of Demore's memo, remember Demore's the guy who got fired from Google, was, quote, when addressing the gap in representation in the population, we need to look at population level differences in distributions. Now, here's a simple, and I know we're like, it's like, wah, wah, what's going on here? Well, excuse me, let's talk about the standard deviation and the separation from the mean. I mean, come on, dude, they're, they're, they're putting... They're, they're putting stuff in the water to sterilize everybody, and you're here talking about, you know, greater male variability hypothesis. It's America. What's wrong with you? Uh, I mean, other hosts maybe would take that approach, but I, I like to get into a little bit of the science here. Uh, and here's what it's saying, which, are, which no doubt would get you in all kinds of trouble uh, for even bringing up, that in the aggregate, now this doesn't mean that any one individual is affected by this, but in the aggregate men are in some personality traits and some skills overrepresented when it comes to women uh, in the areas of extreme ability and extreme lack of ability so when you look at this you see that what they're trying to say is that men are going to be in some cases in math and science overrepresented at the genius level and also overrepresented at the idiot level. Here's the abstract of this piece. I mean, idiot is not a nice word, but at the very low level of the spectrum. And here's what the abstract says. Why are males overrepresented at the upper extremes of intelligence? One possibility for which there's some empirical support is that variance is greater among adult males. There is little published evidence of the development of that variability. Is it manifest in early childhood or does it develop later? We explored sex differences in phenotypic variance in scores on a general ability factor extracted from several tests of verbal and nonverbal ability at ages 2, 3, 4, 7, 9, and 10 in a sample of British children. We found greater variance among boys at every age except two, despite the girls' mean advantage from two to seven. Girls are significantly overrepresented at the t high tail and boys at the low tail at ages two, three, and four. By age 10, the boys have a higher mean, greater, var greater variance, and are overrepresented in the high tail. Sex differences in variance emerge early, even before preschool, suggesting that they are not determined by educational factors. Um, and it just goes on and on and, and with, with a lot more uh, thinking and, and analysis and science. This is just trying to look at this problem and say, okay, what's really going on here? Are there, in the aggregate, differences among men and women that are biological, that affect skills, professional choices, and, and other things? One of the things they found out, for example, is that, uh, that there are social factors that are certainly at work. Women who have high math competency are also disproportionately likely, as compared to male counterparts, to have high verbal competency. So women who are really good at math are really good at everything, which means they can pick anything they want to do. And if you, want to, if you can pick anything you want to do, guess what? You may not want to be stuck in a lab for the rest of your life. I'm just saying. I mean, you know, no, 
no offense to people that spend all their time in labs. I'm hoping you guys all can, you know, create flying cars and, and cure cancer soon uh, across the board. But I, I just think that this is this is where you, it's such such an interesting discussion. And it does have impacts in our on our society. And it would change all these programs and all this special hiring that they do and these different training uh, modules that we all have to sit through on. Oh, you know, you don't want to be discouraging women from speaking up in class and all this. That's not what's really going on. And one of the problems we have, and this is true all over the place, because identity politics now are so... And I'm taking a break from the science for a moment. Excuse, excuse, excuse me, excuse me, science. Uh, one of the problems we have is that identity politics are so ingrained now in our conversations that we can't have a discussion about the aggregate without some imbecile coming along and saying, oh, well, excuse me, but like I was in a class where the smartest math student in the entire class was a woman, so obviously your thesis is crap. It's like no one's saying that that's not the case. No one's saying there aren't women. Most women are way better than I am at math. I am not good at math, right? This is not about individuals. This is about overall populations of billions of people, a few billion men and a few billion women, but small variations among vast populations will have enormous social and societal impact, i.e., if in general you have a 3x likelihood that men will have extreme ability in uh, theoretical mathematics, that's going to mean that you're going to have a vast majority when you add in all these other factors of men who are doing theoretical math, uh, of, of people doing theoretical mathematics are going to be men, right? I mean, I'm making up the numbers, but you see what I'm saying. Even if it's, now 3x would be a big differential, but let's say, you know, it's 70-30. It's well, when you play that out and then you add in the factors about how women make different career choices or women have different life uh, lifestyle preferences for their careers or whatever. I mean, these are all aggregate conversations, right? This is, this is in general, but people, because identity politics are so deep seated right now, they won't even let you have the conversation about the aggregate. And they shut it down by saying, well, you're, you're demeaning the individual, you're demeaning individuals. And that's not true. In fact, policy of any kind is all about the aggregate. You can't have a policy discussion without talking about what is mostly true, right? I mean, you, you look at the, the whole concept of law. You know, we have laws set up because we need to determine that some actions in some circumstances are not allowed, are, uh, are need to be prevented, need to be punished if they are committed. But there are certainly exceptions, right? There are all kinds of reasons for why something, you know, if, if you shoot somebody because they broke into your home and they've got a butcher knife and, you know, they're trying to get into you, they're trying to kick down your, your bedroom door, that's self-defense. If you shoot somebody because they took your parking space and you don't like them, that's murder, right? We, we can understand that, you know, when you make the statute about, and people say, oh, Buck, but they, they, they tailor laws to specific situations. Yeah, I get that. But if you're going to be making laws, you're going to have to be taking a generalized approach to situations and then allow for individual variants, allow for the specifics of the story to determine what happens in each case. But you make laws on a general basis. You make policy on a general basis. And so that means looking at 
things like standard deviation, which has to do with the variation from the average, how 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 much there are separations from what is commonplace, what is average in a group. Uh, those are discussions you want to have. And women and men and math competency and engineering and science and technology. These are all areas of discussion that we should be able to have without being concerned. They're going to be shouted down for being sexist, shouted down for being a bigot or whatever it may be. Just trying to figure out what's really going on here so we can understand it better, understanding is step one, and then implement better policies, which will be based in some way on the aggregate. Don't forget to check out BuckSexton.com and also check out BuckSexton.com slash store for all of the latest Team Buck gear. Always appreciate when you can uh, take a look. we got hats, mugs, t-shirts, all kinds of fun stuff there. Uh, and closing it out today here in the Freedom Hut, I wanted to tell you that... Uh, well, yes, indeed, it is true. Many of you have heard for a long time the scent is very important for the, uh, how do you say, attraction. That is the way someone smells, the way the person... Cast a certain odor in the air is how you uh, will view them. And whether you want to woo them or uh, run away screaming, it has to do with the smell. The French have known this for a very long time. The French understand smells. They understand the cheese should be smelly. And in fact, what we see from science is that a person should be uh, smelly as well, no? Oh, there's science behind this one. Oh, yes. This one in the New York Post. Just one whiff of another person's body odor could be enough to fall in love, according to new research. And it could also be the key to the way humans bond and decide whether they like someone else. Some animals use odor from a very early age to create attachments to family members, and humans could develop relationships in a similar way, according to the research. Look, I... I I think that this is there's there's definitely some truth to this. Smell is not a well understood sense. Uh, smell is so profound in how we perceive the environment around us in many ways. I mean, first of all, it's essential for food. So, I mean, when I am doing my uh, my Brussels sprouts a la buck with the yogurt, mint sauce, and the fig puree, um, it's very important how it smells. But even whether you like the place that you work, whether you enjoy a certain restaurant, whether you like a certain person may in fact have to do with smell. And, uh, you know, I I've always thought that there was a lot of this that science doesn't really understand because I'm somebody who, for whatever reason, and some of you may have the same thing. There's some people just don't like me. And, and I understand why certain people don't like me or I, I either had a weird interaction with them or I rarely think that I cross people, but I'm sure I do sometimes. Uh, but some people don't like me and I just don't know why. I, I couldn't tell you why they just don't like me. And maybe some of you are the same way. And I, I think it's also, to be fair, true that there are some people that as much as I wish I would give them more of a chance, I don't like them just I'm just I just don't like them uh, and it's very uh, early on in my getting to know somebody whether I at least subconsciously or quietly if not subconsciously make that determination as to whether I 
enjoy being around a person or, or whether I think that I, I like a person at all, I think smell might have something to do with it. I don't mean smell like, oh, man, check out all that B.O. Yeah, I like the smell of my own brand. You know, I don't mean being uh, smelly and gross makes you either more or less attractive to a person. As it turns out, that really nasty smell you get in your armpits when you're nervous has to do with bacteria on the skin in your armpit. It's, so it's not a good, that's not a smell that you, you really want. That's actually kind of sending a warning to you. But smell plays such an important role in our interactions with each other, and no one really spends much time, spends much time thinking about it. And I just think that maybe some people, you know, maybe some people don't like the way I smell. And not, not that I need to take showers more often, although maybe I do. Uh, but this is one of those areas of human interaction that certainly deserves more study, and now they're beginning to do that. Here's what the piece said. Um, the dopamine neurotransmitter, uh, or let me talk to you about neurotransmitter switching. Let's get all science together. Let's nerd out with the science, everybody. The dopamine neurotransmitter uh, switching. Okay, it was found in high levels during normal family kinship bonding, but switched to the GABA neurotransmitter in the case of artificial odor kinship or non-kin attraction. In reversed conditions, there is a clear sign of neurotransmitter switching, so now we can see that neurotransmitters are really controlling a specific behavior. Uh, Social interaction, whether it's with people in the workplace or family and friends, has many determinants, Um, but smell may in fact be one of them. Smell may be something that factors into whether you like somebody, whether you want to be around them, what you think of them, all of the above, my friends. So keep that in mind as you uh, reach for the Irish Spring. Oh, on Thursday, I'm going to be taking a shower with Irish Spring. Oh, total side note. Uh, you, If you have not seen this, and it does have some curses, but it's not bad curses. It's funny curses. Uh, if you have not seen this video uh, of an Irish family in a kitchen in their kitchen back in Ireland and a bat gets into the kitchen. It's, I think it's, it's just so amusing. It's going viral right now. If you go on YouTube and type in Irish family bat, uh, then it'll come up and it is, it's amazing. It's, oh, go, go, go get him. Oh, get him. Get the bat. Oh, get that bat. It's you've got to check it out. And a dog gets involved. It's it's really fun stuff. It's really entertaining. I think you will definitely uh, enjoy it. So I would put out to you that uh, I'll put that out there that you should uh, when you get the chance, check out um, what's going on with that video, uh, which maybe we'll put that up on BucksXN.com, too. Although there are some curses just to be aware. So not for kids because there's some bad language, but there's nothing adult. It's just people cursing because there's a bat flying around their kitchen. Uh, And it's, you know, when Irish people curse, it doesn't sound quite as bad. Um, So anyway, uh, that's my last little bit of closing wisdom for the day. Uh, As always, appreciate you hanging out with me here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, Please do follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton whenever you get the chance. And also on Twitter, for those of you who are on Twitter, and and I try to live tweet throughout the show as much as I can. uh, It's just at Buck Sexton. Instagram, Buck Sexton. You're noticing a pattern here. All right, I'll be with you from L.A. tomorrow out in the West Coast Freedom Hut. So until then, my friends, shields high.